Hi, welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Bolin, and I am absolutely delighted today to have Randy Ulmer as my guest. And this means a lot to me because I grew up as a Randy Ulmer fan, like in a big way. I mean, there were times he made me really mad with the big mule deer he was shooting and I wasn't shooting, but generally I was a huge fan. And so Randy, welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thanks, Randy. So I wanted to give a little bit of background on you to some of our younger listeners. Now, anybody my age that bow hunts knows exactly who you are, and we could like give a resume. But I wanted for the younger bow hunters just to bring them up to speed. So forgive me if I talk a little bit here in the beginning. I definitely want the listeners to hear a lot from you, but I want to know who they're listening to. So um, Randy is, is a world-famous tournament archer. Um, he's won the world championships in multiple different events throughout a, a, a great number of seasons. He won, uh, he was on the U S archery team, won the gold medal in Norway. He was a FIDA world champ. He's won the Vegas indoor shoot. He's been shooter of the year on multiple occasions. He's won the ISA and, and ASA. I, the, the, the world championships like multiple times. Um, he is the only guy, I think the only guy on the planet that has been, uh, inducted into the archery hall of fame and the bow hunting hall of fame. Is there anybody else, Randy? I'm curious. Do you know of anybody oh, else that's in both? Hall yeah, of there's fame? a couple of people, um, that have been inducted to both. Uh, I guess my claim to fame would be that I, you can be inducted into these hall of fames for other things other than bow hunting. Like you can be inducted into the bow hunting hall of fame for writing, for example, oh, for okay, manufacturer. Yeah. but I'm the only one that's been inducted in the bow hunting hall of fame for my bow hunting achievements and the archery hall of fame for my competitive archery. Gotcha. So I guess, yeah. I guess that would be it. So Randy is an incredible shooter, but he's also an incredible hunter. Um, when did you sort of retire from shooting Randy? How long ago was that? Well, I guess I really haven't. Uh, my son, my youngest son kind of got into it. So um, I went back and uh, shot the Nationals a few years ago and uh, the Vegas shoot and whatnot until he kind of found girls at 16 and, and, and quit uh. shooting. But I, I still shoot. I still shoot uh, a lot. I just don't. Uh, I just don't go back and shoot the big stuff anymore. Well, there, there was a period of time where that was like you were shooting in a lot of tournaments. About how long ago was it when you started doing more hunting and less of the big tournament shooting? Well, actually, uh, I always I was a bow hunter way before I was a tournament archer. Um, so there really was never a transition uh, okay. away from bow hunting. I, I, the, the fortunate thing uh, is the back in the day, uh, the archery uh, tournament season basically was from December, January through, say, the middle of August. So it left the whole bow hunting season free. And so uh, fortunately, I was able to do both uh, throughout. But I, I kind of tapered off on this, you know, the, the world level shooting about 2000. Okay. And that's, that's about the time that I got heavily into bow hunting. And uh, so I had heard about your success as an archer and, and competitive shooter, but I firsthand saw your success as a hunter and as a writer. And you've always been, I mean, you've killed some of the most incredible mule deer and elk. Like, I don't know anybody on earth who has uh, a portfolio, let's call it 
of elk and mule deer with a bow like you do. I don't know of anybody. And the nice thing is you were willing to share a lot of that through writing and you were able to share a lot of your tips and, and tactics. And I personally learned a lot from that. And so, so it's pretty exciting to have you on again. You know, my, my formative years in bow hunting were, you know, I was watching all of your success and I found it very inspiring. So have you, I'm curious, have you been out much this year? How, how has your success been this year, Randy? <laughs> well, uh, this year, uh, was a very eventful season. I found a huge non-typical buck, um, in Colorado and, you know, this is one thing that we like need. How to... huge? How huge? Uh, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> I'll send you a video, and you can you can decide how huge. But a very very distinct, big, the most massive buck I've ever seen. Anyway, uh, long story short, and this is one of the things that that I'm still struggling to figure out. And and you've shot some nice mule deer too, some really big mature older age class mule deer, but. I'm going to kind of change the subject just a little bit here because it, it'll explain my frustrations this year. One of the things I've discovered, uh, well, for the last 20 years, and, and I'm hunting older age class mule deer. Yes. You know, and, and mule deer are, um, they're basically lion food and they're very, very, very wired, especially a seven, eight, nine year old buck. And one of the difficulties I've experienced and I, and, and perhaps some of your listeners know um, some some ways I can get around this. But the biggest problem I have with these mule deer is they jump the stream. They are oh, just man. wired. Yeah. And I hate to admit it, but I would say 70% of the big bucks I killed in the last 15, 20 years have jumped the string. And I don't know what to do about it. I've always had a hard and fast limit on how far I shoot. Um, I will not shoot at a mule deer over 60 yards. Well, you know, unless I've wounded him, obviously, yeah. but I have to get 60 yards because I've watched the same deer for maybe a couple years or at least a year. And I've spent a lot of time on them. I do not want to wound them. And I take pride in the fact that I don't wound them, but Randy, um, I have one question about your 60 yards. I've heard you say before that you believe that somebody should shoot half the distance of what they can shoot a 10 inch group very, very consistently. Does that mean that you can shoot a 10 inch group at 120 yards extremely consistently? Oh yeah. In my backyard. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's the, that, that, that 10 inch yard, 10 inch group at say 120 yards, that's in your backyard, but that's, that's what your hunting bow and yep. that's, that's on your first shot. And that's with a broadhead, not a field point. And that's right. That's the issue that, 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 that you got there. But, you know, that's in your backyard with no wind and all that. So I'm a very firm believer that that half the distance you can shoot an eight, you know, whatever the kill zone of whatever you're hunting. If it's a coos deer, it's a six inch kill, kill zone. If it's right. a mule deer, it's an eight to ten inch kill zone. Um and then you've got kinetic energy to think about if you're on sure. species, but we won't get into that. But so back to back to what you were saying, though. So you, so you're so you're a sixty yard limit, and you were saying about jumping the string. Well, yeah, the, these deer, and and I just when I shoot, and again, this is this like this deer this year was. I've been watching that deer for three years, 
And so I've got a lot of history with this deer and you finally get in position to shoot and you shoot and the deer's not where he was when the shot went off. And I haven't experienced that with many other species, coos deer a little bit. And this year I'm seriously, because I've been able to recover every deer I've ever shot. And I, I would have recovered this deer. I did not recover him. I hate to admit it, it's the first animal I've lost in a long, long time. But I had some help from other people in scaring him. Uh, it, it's a long story. But my point right now is I need to figure out. I've had people tell me that they won't shoot at coos, serious coos deer hunters that say they won't shoot at a coos deer. And these are good shooters. that They won't shoot at a coos deer under 60 yards because um, the deer won't be there when the, when the arrow gets there. So, and, and I can, at, at 60 yards, I think I'm 95% efficient, you know, assuming there's not a lot of wind and, and it's a broadside shot and, and uh, you know, that, that it's good circumstances. But my problem is the deer is not there when my arrow gets there. So I am considering either trying to get closer which is very difficult on a mule deer because when you get close to a mule deer within like 35 or 40 yards, they no, don't call I don't want to be there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm considering trying to shoot further. And I hate to even say that because I know I can hit them. I know I can hit a deer every time at 80 yards. I mean, I know I can, sure. you know, again, you know, if the circumstances are right. Um, and I'm, and I've had several people tell me that you need to shoot at them further away because I think I'm, I think my percent success might be higher at 80 yards um, because the deer will still be there perhaps when the arrow gets yeah. there. Yeah. And I think I'm usually shooting at them from 45 to 60 yards because if I can get closer, I will. And for some reason, I, you know, um, I have a lot of respect for Levi Morgan. I mean, I've known him since he was small because he's been in the competitive archery. When, when I was at my peak, he was uh, like a teenager. And, um, he, somebody told me, I didn't hear this, but he, he's told people that he won't shoot at a deer between 45 and 65 yards. Now, a lot of people, I wouldn't put a lot of credence in that, but Levi Morgan's a pretty sharp guy and he's a very honest guy. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm missing something. And so um, I've diverted your question here. But for a reason, I, I would like some input on what people think. And, and obviously, you need to be a good archer to be even talking about shooting at something over 40 yards. But, uh, you know, I spend a great deal of time perfecting my setup to where I can shoot, you know, say a six or a seven inch group at 100 yards with my bow hunting setup. But uh, I'm not utilizing that accuracy because, again, if your target's moving, and it's gone by the time the arrow gets there. Um, yeah. What, what is the best? What is the best? Now, for everything else, I'll shoot it. For, like elk, I, I can't remember an elk I've shot over 40 yards right. uh, just because I like to make sure my shot's good. And elk are easier to sneak up on. But but I'm really having angst this year over what I need to do because I do everything I can to silence my bow. I do everything I can to, to make sure that the animal's not alarmed. Everything's good before I shoot, but the deer just aren't there. Like this deer was with another smaller buck when I shot him. The smaller buck didn't do anything, but by the time my arrow got to this buck, he had moved forward about two, two and a half feet. He'd gone down and then moved forward. And forward. So yeah, it wasn't it's just, just so, a duck. 
It wasn't just a duck. And most of these big mule deer will go down and forward. Yeah. I shot a, a really big, well, really nice mule deer in, in uh, Utah and uh, actually had it on film. A buddy of mine was filming it from a long ways away. And I shot this deer broadside at 45 yards. And you could watch where the deer's chest cavity was. You put a, you know, a, put a pointer on the television or on the computer screen. And by the time the arrow got there, the deer had gone down and spun 90 degrees. And I hit him right in the throat, fortunately, oh because it killed him right yeah. away. But you could see how far he moved in that amount of time. And it's just frustrating because you devote, I mean, I spent 40 days a year out scouting for mule deer. And, you know, you, you, you like on an average year, I'll look at four to 600 bucks. And, and you, you know, you chase the biggest one and, and it's so frustrating when it all comes down to that and you do everything right, but yet you don't recover the deer. And this is the first one I haven't recovered in a long, long time, but it's just very painful. And, and you're finding on the, the closer shots, um, th- they're not jumping the string or they don't have time to. I don't and on the very on. far shots, th- there's yeah. just not the pressure, the sound, all of that. Yeah, I don't get I I don't get I don't allow myself to get too close. I mean, I, I very rarely have I shot a deer under thirty yards just because I don't want to get that close. It's an accident if I shoot one closer than than forty. Right. But I'm rethinking that because you you can't get away with anything at twenty five or thirty yards. The deer don't tolerate anything at that distance. They just if they hear or see or smell anything, they just run. You know, Randy, you know what I love about you, man, is that you're asking these questions and, and you're vulnerable enough to, to second guess yourself and to, uh, even, even talk about this on a podcast. Like I really respect that. And, uh, I, I think that this is a, this is a question that, that, that we need to dive into and, and maybe not like on this podcast, but we need to dive into it with some research somehow. You know, I was listening, there's a, if you look at the Hoyt Bowhunting podcasts, on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, look for the one with Bill Winky. And they talk for about 15 minutes about whitetail jumping the string. And I know it's a different thing, but he's done a tremendous amount of research on it. And he's actually come up with a formula that it, which I won't get perfectly, but I'll give you an idea of what he said that, that if, if a deer's inside of, 20, he just aims a couple inches low. And if it's, you know, say at 30, he might aim at the bottom of the heart. And if it's at 40, he aims under the brisket. And he's confident that that's the highest percentage shot at 40 yards on a whitetail. Now, don't quote me on those exact numbers. Go and listen to the podcast. I'm talking to our listeners now. Go and listen to the podcast. This isn't my research. This is Bill Winky's research. But it, I was fascinated by that, that you would actually well, aim off of the brisket on something. But I think well, that with the mule deer moving forward, that adds an, an additional level of complexity that maybe it's more of the shot selection distance that maybe some shot selections are, are just less probable. Well, the, the, the moving forward thing is that uh, I'm shooting at 60. I'm always shooting at 60 because I, I, I sneak in until I get 60 and then I shoot. That's right. been my modus operandi for Yeah, That's one of your years. rules. Yeah, It's my rule. And so what happens is at 40, the deer is still on his way down. But by 60, they're moving forward. And Bill Winky and I have been friends for 30 years. And we've discussed yep. this over and over and over again. And – 
I cannot, I cannot get myself to aim off a deer because sure enough, I know when I do that, he's not going to move. Yeah. So what I want well, to do, what about aiming at the bottom of the vitals though? The spot that you still know, if you hit it, you're going to kill him, but there's still a large margin of air above him. Well, no, here's the deal. My deer are down and moving forward. Right. I would say 60 to 70% of the deer I've shot, I don't shoot them in the back straps. I shoot them back. I hit them in the, 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 in behind the vitals. I, 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 I like to say I shoot them behind the shoulder. It just happens to be two feet behind the shoulder. Uh, it's just you're not, saying unintentionally because they've moved. Because they've moved. Yeah. Yes. So let me, let me hit you with this then, Randy. I know, I, I've, and I've heard you talk about this before, that you don't like to shoot tight to the shoulder because you, know, you, want, you want to be back in sort of the rib cage area where you're going to get this awesome hole. Nothing's going to cover up as the shoulder moves back. You want to be sort of in the middle to back of the lungs. Ideally, that's where you want your arrow to hit. So what if you're 55 yards? And now we're brainstorming on a podcast. I mean, maybe that's not the best idea. But what if you were to, say you're at 55, 60 yards. What if you were to aim at the very bottom of the vitals as close to the shoulder as you can get and still kill them? And if you hit dead on and he doesn't move, he's dead. But if he moves like they have been moving on you, you're still high in the back of the lungs, maybe in the liver, maybe in the hot, you know, in the guts, but you're still like in the ball game. But if you're aiming at the back of the lungs, dead center of the body, you're out of the ball game. If he moves down and forward, you know, and, and that's a great idea, Alan. Here's the thing. Yeah. You may know this, but I'm a large animal veterinarian. So I know anatomy better than most. Uh, And tucked behind the shoulder is a great place to shoot with a rifle. It is a horrible place to shoot with a bow. And here's the reason. The lungs are actually like a funnel, very much like a funnel. They're very narrow and very thin. I mean, across. They're not very wide across. Uh, at the front of the shoulders, you know, and not at the front of the shoulders, but just behind the shoulder. So you've got a very small area that you have to hit. And worse yet, if they are quartering away at all, and a lot of times you don't know because of all the excitement and everything, the exact body position, but if they're quartering away at all, you'll hit one lung and just part of one lung. And if you're high at all, you don't get the lungs or you don't get, you get the high part of the lungs, which is not very deadly. And if you're low at all, believe it or not, if you look at a, an anatomical picture of a deer, their intestines, the small intestines, go way far forward, almost up to the heart, because the diaphragm is actually slanted very, very much from the lower front to the upper back. Um, is And if you hit forward at all, you're going to hit shoulder bone. It's just a very low percentage shot. Uh, so I like your idea. But then again, it, it makes me very, very nervous because the one thing is if you do hit a deer back, if you hit a deer back in the liver or even the intestines, if you're an experienced bow hunter and you know, okay, yeah. I hit that deer back, I'm going to give him 12 hours before I even step foot. And it's not just what most people do, and I watch them through the binoculars because I help a lot of people. What most people do is if they hit a deer immediately, they want to go look. They, 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 
just can't stand not running over the hill to see where he went or uh, or just moving. The one thing that I've learned is when you shoot a deer, don't move at all. Because if a deer, especially an older age class buck or bull, if, if you hit them back and they don't know what happened, they won't go anywhere. They'll go 200, right. 300 yards. They'll bed down and they'll die. Uh, but most people can't stand it and they follow them up. And when they when the deer sees a person after they've been wounded, especially in really old age class, but they're going to go and go and go. Same with the bull. So, um, you know, to be honest, I'd rather hit a deer a little back in the liver than I would to hit him a little forward in the shoulder because sure. you're not going to recover them in the shoulder and you will recover them in the liver if you're patient. Well, and what I'm saying, Randy, is maybe think about what spot is as far down and as far forward as you would feel comfortable with. Yeah. And sort of push, push that limit of your comfort into that spot that you still feel comfortable, but it's, it's up there because odds are that deer's dropping and moving forward. Right. Odds are. So then you're in the perfect spot at that point. Well, Alan, I like your thinking and I'm going to, I'm getting ready to write an article on this and it's not going to be a how to article. It's going to be a questioning article because there's a lot of very experienced and very intelligent bow hunters out there, such as yourself. I want to know what other people do. Um, And it has to be someone that's hunting something that's very, maybe it's, you know, an African black buck or something. It has to be somebody that's hunting an animal that is jumping the stream because I am just at a loss. It is so frustrating so frustrating and i've been fighting it forever and i know there's people out there that say yeah you're just jerking you're shooting back but you know (laughs) i i the the thing is is if i'm jerking the trigger well here's the thing i've i've had major buck fever before and when you have buck fever you know you don't check your bubble you don't you know uh right think okay it's 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 actually 58 yards it's not 60 i better aim just a scotchy scotch low and pick your spot you don't all that stuff you don't remember all that stuff if you're you know if you're completely buck fevered out and um you know you don't you don't have the follow through i and and it's very coincidental that every one of these deer i never hit a deer forward they're always back right. back and a little high so yeah. I don't think I'm just getting all flustered and, 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 you know, yanking the trigger because I'm all, whether the deer's facing left or right, most people that yank the trigger usually yank it and, and it makes things go in one direction. But whether the deer is facing left or right, I always just hit them back. Yeah. And I and know, I know how you practice. One. I know how you practice and I know that you practice perfect shots and you know what that feels like. I mean, you've spent your life knowing what that feels like. And I think you would know if you were jerking a shot. I mean, there's just like, I, I mean, I know what people are saying because it is true for a lot of guys, but I know that's not happening here. Well, and the thing is, yeah. when I was all finished with, you know, with my regular competition, uh, they had a thing called the ESPN Great Outdoor Games, which is a speed shoot. You shoot at all these targets, you know, moving by and, and you have to shoot so many arrows in, in so much time. And so you really are yanking the trigger. and even when I shot that competition, uh, you know, you were actually yanking the trigger. But even when I yanked the trigger, I'm very accurate. Uh, I mean, right. that, that sounds braggadocious, but no, you know, I know I'm still, yeah. still going to hit what I'm aiming at. So I, I've kind of discounted the whole yanking the trigger thing. 
because if I do, I, I yank it to the left or right, depending on which way the deer. And I do. I study it. And every time when the thing that I'm just praying when my when I shoot that shot is please stay there, please stay there. Oh, and then man. you see him go down and forward and it just my heart just sinks every time that That's happens. Frustrating. Anyway, we've yeah. I've got way off the with the question. No, I, you know what? I'm glad you did because I found that very interesting. And and again, I appreciate your vulnerability, Randy. That's that's awesome. I, I appreciate you being willing to talk about that. And I, I don't know, um, I don't know if there's a way for people to give feedback on this. Um, maybe, maybe we do a post about this on Hoyt's Instagram account and get people to put their opinions in the comments. And you know, we, can, we can read through idea. and see what see what we see. You know, somebody well, might there's have somebody a, out there. You know, the one thing I think one reason I did fairly well in in competitive archery is because I always listen to everybody's feedback and you know you have to have an awful big filter yeah right but even from some people that might not be very good you can learn some unbelievable things from people that maybe don't have any notoriety or haven't really achieved anything and I would love to know what especially coos deer hunter maybe African hunters that or people that go to Africa and hunt black bucks I've heard black buck I think it's black bucks I've never hunted Africa, but I think it's black bucks. They say that are always gone when the arrow gets there. But I would very much love to know what other people have experienced. And I think I'm going to learn the most from coos deer hunters because I've had a couple, because I live in Arizona and I've had a couple very experienced coos deer hunters that won't shoot at a coos deer under 80 yards. So, Oh my goodness. Under 80. They won't shoot at a coos deer under 80 yards. That's, that's, wow. Now that's not coming from me. That's, that's what they've told me. Sure. Yeah, no, I got you. That out there as gospel. Yeah. What I'm saying is these guys hunt coos deer every year. They're good shots. They're tournament archers. um, And they've just discovered that, yeah, they can hit a coos deer sized target much better at 40 yards than they can at 80 yards. But if the coos deer size target is not there when they shoot at them at 40 yards, they're much more likely a much higher percentage of kill at 80. So, and a coos deer isn't a very big target. It's half the size of a mule deer. So I don't know. I'm looking for answers because I'm very frustrated because you know, because you've hunted big mule deer and anybody that's hunted big mule deer knows the frustration of, because there's an incredible amount of physical work. I mean, there is you're in great shape and you know, opportunities are very limited, very limited. Extremely limited because there aren't very many big deer out there. And when you lose an opportunity like that, it is heartbreaking. Yeah. And the one key, cause I've hunted them now for 50 years and I've kind of learned what you can do and can't do. So I've gotten decent at finding them and getting close to them. You'll never get good but I've gotten decent at it. I mean, people say, you know, you, what do you do? Just trot out there and just find one. No, you work for days and days and days and months and, and you work and work and work and work. And finally everything kind of falls into place. So I've kind of caught those puzzles kind of in play, the pieces kind of in place, but the one giant puzzle piece that's missing for me is, is the getting them killed efficiently because as a veterinarian i just i mean i have no problem with killing an animal and eating it none at all i grew up on a farm that's just what you do okay man in my opinion man was made to eat meat and uh if you're willing to kill your own 
all the better for it. It's organic. It's low yeah. fat. You and I are both exercise freaks. You know, uh, it's good for you. So it, not that I have to justify my hunting, but I'm a veterinarian. So that puts me in a, a special category where um, when I wound something, I feel more deeply troubled by it than than probably the average person. And for the last month, I have just been agonizing over this deer. I spent, now there's a little bit more to it than that. Normally I would have killed this deer, but long story, because you asked how I did this year. Long story, um, shortly after I shot the deer, we had a freak snowstorm in Colorado. We got where I was hunting a foot and a half snow. I'll send you a picture, Alan, where you can just see just the very tippy top of my you know, I was using a Kuyu tent, and just the yeah. very tippy top of my tent, you could see through the snow. But oh I burrowed goodness. back. No, it was bad. But anyway, so, and I had the deer. I never lost a deer for a day. But uh, I couldn't get close to him because there's a foot and a half snow, and you know how noisy that is. Yeah. And he was he was very severely wounded, but I couldn't get close to him. And the muzzleloader season came in while the snow was fairly deep. Uh, and the night before the muzzleloader season, I was 150 yards from him, but he could hear me. I, I just couldn't get any closer to him. So there were some muzzleloader hunters there, and my buddies begged them not to go in there. Said, hey, that deer's severely wounded. Randy's going to kill him as soon as that snow melts and he can get in there. Well, they all – they said, hey, it's fair game. And they all came in there. They surrounded the base, and he was in. I never saw him again. But anyway, long story short – I spent yeah. I spent two and a half weeks in there looking for him um, and never found him. I'm sure he's dead, but nonetheless, it was just very, very, very painful. Yeah. So my season this year, um, and I actually had an elk hunt in Montana that I I forewent. I did I didn't I, I forego I didn't go just because I wanted to find this deer. Wow. And plus, I kind of That's warned myself. I'd warned myself to a frazzle and gotten really sick. Um, oh. Yeah, I actually ended up in the hospital after all that because oh I. Geez. Well, no, I, I just I just exhausted myself. It was yeah, stupid. Yeah, yeah. In the snow and and trying to trying to get it done before the muzzleloader hunt and that deep right. snow. Anyway, my point is that uh, you asked me how I did this year. Well, I didn't do worth a hoot. <laughs> Ask me about last year. <laughs> Well, I know how you did last year. Oh man. And that was amazing. That ram you killed and the the deer, I mean, uh, as usual, you delivered. Hey, everybody has a year where, where things don't go as planned. So, and, uh, yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing all that. Let me ask you something, um, that, that, you know, I mean, look, I got, I got the great Randy Omer on the line here and he's going to answer any question that I put out there. So I, I, I want to know, I believe in, I believe in the Pareto principle, which is the 80, 20 rule that 80% of the results come from 20% of the efforts or inputs. And that, you know, we got to be careful how we spend our time because there are certain things that produce more results than other things, certain things that are more valuable and I'm curious when it comes to setting up your bow. And I, I know you are an expert at setting up a bow for accurate shooting. And I'm talking about a hunting bow here, of course. This is a bow hunting podcast, not a target archery podcast. What are the most important things to you in a bow setup? And, and I'm talking about everything from tuning and, and the different types of tuning to how you set up your arrows 
to the, you know, the, the diameter of arrows, the type of fletching for wind resistance or wind resilience, um, the speed of the bow, the brace height, the axle to axle of the bow. What things do you look for? And what things do you think are, Hey, you know what, Alan, if I had to pick, there's no way I would ever shoot X and Y is really, really important to me. What kind of things are most important to you, Randy, do you think for building a super accurate bow hunting setup? Well, Alan, um, you know, that 80, 20 rule, it's kind of your ballywick because of what you do and the successes that you've had. Uh, and it's interesting to apply it to the, uh, to the archery world, especially the bow hunting world, because it's very, very true. Um, had you asked me that question about my target archery setup, the answer would be completely different, not completely different, but, but quite different than from my bow hunting setup. And here's the reason. That's why. interesting. Yes. Now I use the same fundamentals for my target archery setup as for my bow hunting setup. Cause you want both of them to be very accurate. The difference is your target archery bow is in the case you drive to the tournament or fly to the tournament stays in the case, you pull it out. Um, you know, probably the weather's going to be good. Um, you're not going to be dragging it through the brush and you only have to shoot. Well, if it's a Vegas tournament, you're shooting 30 arrows a day. If it's a 3d tournament, you're shooting uh, 20 arrows a day. Um, and very set circumstances and, and right. environment. Uh, so you can fine tune that target archery bow. I mean, you can fine tune it perfectly. Well, you and I both hunt very similar. We enjoy the same sort of things. Um, you're very athletic and very driven and very, um, you, you kind of like to push the edge of the envelope. You're not afraid to stay out there for 20 days and, and, and tough it out. Most people don't, but just for you and I, cause I'm the same way. I'm a mountain hunter. You take your bow and you fine tune it. You, Okay, you paper tune it, and then you limb tune it, and you bear shaft tune it, and you do all this sort of thing. But really, the vast majority of the time when I'm shooting at an animal, I've drugged that bow through the brush for 10 days. I've, I've dropped it a few times. I've fallen it on a few times. It's been in my backpack. Like this time, I left my bow out. I don't know what I was thinking, but I hung it on a tree, forgot to take it in my tent with me, and it snowed. So... You know, yeah. it's not my bow. And so the wheel, the, the wheels had frozen ice in the, in the, in the grooves of the wheels. Anyway, that bow is not going to be perfectly accurate. Okay. Once you drag it through the first brush, once you put it in your backpack and strap it down tight, once you fall on it, it's not going to be perfectly accurate. So all that fine tuning, I hate to say it, but it's somewhat a waste of time. Now I, I do perfectly tune my bow before I go. But that's one of the reasons I limit my shots to certain distances. So to answer your question, the most important things, when I'm shooting out west, a good percentage of the time, not really elk hunting, but mule deer hunting, especially above timberline mule deer hunting, you're dealing with wind. So when I'm setting up my hunting bow, I want a detachable quiver because, okay. first of all, we just talked about jumping the spring for a half an hour. The quiver is the one thing that I have never been able to make quiet. So I take my quiver off for two reasons, mainly to decrease the noise 
The second reason is my bow is more accurate, more balanced. I mean, you can make your bow balanced by adding weight on the opposite side of the quiver and everything like that, but you're adding weight when you're in the mountains, you just don't want to add weight to anything. So I take the quiver off my bow for that reason. And I take the quiver off my bow because if there's any wind at all, it acts like a, a sail out there to make you wiggle around more. So, so Randy, do you, yeah. all of your paper tuning and tuning, you do it with the quiver off then because you're it's expecting off. to take yeah. it off. I so haven't shot an animal I've, with my quiver. I haven't shot an other than an elk. Occasionally, because you're moving fast with elk, occasionally you have to shoot an elk with your quiver on. Yeah. But I haven't shot a mule deer with my quiver on in forever. Wow. Uh, Interesting. You just, you just, first of all, it decreases your accuracy. Well, we just went through all that. Yeah. So yeah. I want a detachable quiver. The other thing is I want arrows that do extraordinarily well in the wind. Okay. Okay. I also want a heavy arrow. One of the things, again, we've talked about jumping the string. I have done everything in my power to make my bow quiet. The best thing you can do to make your bow quiet, other than take your quiver off, is to shoot a heavy arrow. That's the one thing. you. So I shoot an arrow that's over 500 grains. Okay. Okay. So I'm not shooting What's your draw length, Randy? 29 and three quarters. Okay. And, um, and how many, how many pounds do you shoot? 72 typically. Okay. All right. You know, 70, it just depends. I always kind of like to max my bow out. So with the Hoyt bows, you know, if it, it says it's going to max out at 70, you usually get yeah, a pound of 72. More. Yeah. 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 So that's, I shoot it at the bow maxed out. Um, and I think it's really important to, I think it's more important to have your bow perfectly quiet. Now I'm talking about big mule deer or not big mule deer, old mule deer, right? Because right? a mule deer doesn't know if he's big or not. He just knows how old he is That's and right. how, he how much experience. experience he's got. So yeah. you can, you know, a, a four-year-old 200-inch deer is not going to jump the string as bad as an eight-year-old 180 deer. That's okay? right. It yeah. just is the way it is. You can sit and watch a herd of deer because a lot of times in the summer you're shooting at these deer and they're in bachelor groups. You can watch. Like my, I hunt with my nephew all the time. And so I watch. When he shoots, I'm usually in the binoculars watching. And it, I swear you can you can see all the other deer stand there and the one deer, the target deer, the oldest deer. The target deer is usually the oldest deer. And if there's two older deer in the group, they're down and out. The other deer are all just standing there looking around like, what's going on? Well, that's it, where mule deer get the reputation for not being that bright. It's because they haven't been around an old, mature mule deer because they are. Well, there aren't that many old, mature deer out there. That's true. Yeah. I mean, really, anymore, that there's just not very many deer over three years old. Hard to find. Yeah. They're hard to find. So uh, I want the bow to be very quiet. So. I want things that are idiot proof. I want things that won't move. I want, if, 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 if I drop my, if like I always have my bow, I try to keep my bow inside my pack, but sometimes like if you're just climbing up a mountain, you all just strap it on the back of your pack. I want that bow. If I am to fall over, I want everything to be the same. And typically it is. Yeah. So I use a, a, I use a, an arrow rest that's completely solid, not going right. to move. You know, and, and I actually go so far as to what, what I want, Alan, is I want something that's going to be consistent no matter what I've done to it. Yep. I want a very forgiving setup. I don't care if it's kind of slow. Hell, I have a rangefinder. That's right. what the rangefinder is for. It doesn't have to be fast. fast How do you no feel about a dovetail mounted removable sight? 
Um, well, here's what I do, Alan, and don't tell Hoyt this. Okay. Uh, I'm sure they won't <laughs> listen to this podcast. I, I think you're spilling the beans, buddy. <laughs> okay. Well, no, what I do is, um, yeah, I've got to hesitate here a little bit. I, I don't want to get cut from the pro staff. But yeah, that, that's not going to happen. I, I, I oh. actually, I actually take my side off when I strap it to my pack with a dovetail mount. Okay. Well, but no, 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 no. I, I can't stand doing that because something will change. Here's what I do. I, I get rid of the dovetail. I get rid of the dovetail mount and I bolt my, not to carbon bow. Well, not now, not recently to a carbon bow. It yeah, actually yeah. Works. That carbon is unbelievably strong. I bolt my actual sight to the bow. No dovetail. I just bolt it to the side. That's okay. why in my success photos, you don't see my sight in my success photos. Um, and everything so is the sight is- removable then? No. I, 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 want, I don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean you bolt it? Well, Alan, I, you're going to get me in trouble here. We just Let's just pass over that. No, I take... You have to show me sometime. You're getting I'll rid of show, links no, is what I you're take, saying. I, I go beyond because I'm, you know, I'm out hunting in the mountains and the cliffs and everything. So my sight has no dovetail typically. I okay. typically bolt my sight onto the riser. Gotcha. Um, it's on there. And I, I mean, don't do this or it's going to void your warranty, but, but I've never had an issue. The Hoyt bows are so strong with the, with the systems they use, Okay. but, yeah. but, and I epoxy everything. So everything is wow. on. So nothing. So you go you beyond go, the Loctite. You're not just using Loctite. You're using epoxy to keep everything in place. You know, I put Loctite on bolts. Yeah. But then. What I do is I take epoxy or JB Weld. I mean, my bow looks horrendous. You, 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 you know, it this looks, is incredible. It this looks incredible. like you. It looks like it came out of a junkyard because it'll have. Yeah, I'll show you. <laughs> it'll have uh, <laughs> JB Weld. Like, like I'll put JB Weld on on like my arrow rest where it mounts to the bow, yeah. and what it does is it it if anything moves. There will be a crack in the JB Weld or the epoxy. I like JB Weld. You know. And you can actually see the cracks better. Yep. Same thing with epoxy, though. If anything moves, you can see the epoxy will actually turn a little. It'll change color kind of. It'll sure. get more yeah. if it breaks. So you can look. I'll put an epoxy all the way along my my uh, my arrow rest where it mounts to the bow. Just on everything, really. And and so if, if anything moves, it'll crack the epoxy or crack the JB Weld. And I know that it's moved. So... Yeah, you can throw my bow off a small cliff and it'll still shoot in the same place. So the, the, the reason I'm telling you all this is not for you to go out and do that. I'm just telling you how far I go to make sure that nothing moves in the field because you're much more likely to miss a deer in the field because something – if you're hunting in rough country like we do. Right. And it's on a backpack. You're strapped in. It might be on a horse. You know, it might be on a quad or a motorcycle. I do a lot of stuff on a motorcycle. Um Sooner or later, you're going to bang that thing really hard. It's just going to happen. So is micro-tuning effective? Yeah, it's effective. But is he really going to use it? Now, if you're driving around like southern Arizona and you're hunting coos deer out of your truck and you stop and you shoot at a coos deer 120 yards um, <laughs> and your trucks, you pull your bow out of a bow case, yeah, fine-tuning is great. But that's yeah. not how we hunt. So the, real, the, the reality of the situation 
is you want something that's going to be consistent. Plus, I'm not shooting at 80, 90, or 100 yards. I'm shooting at 60. And at 60 yards, my bow doesn't have to be perfectly tuned. Because at yeah. 60 yards, and, and this sounds a little braggadocious, but at 60 yards, I'm very high percentage of being in the kill zone, extremely high percentage, even if I'm nervous. So, you know, if my bow is not perfectly tuned, which I start out perfectly tuned, but I'm not worried about that tune. I'm not running back to camp every day and shooting it through paper to make sure it's still perfectly tuned. I do try to shoot one arrow every day at 60 yards just to make sure nothing serious has happened. But I can look at my bow and I can go, okay, is my peep move? No. Has my timing changed because I marked the timing? No. Right. Has 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 my arrow rest moved? Absolutely not because it's JB welded. Has my sight moved? No, it's JB welded. Um, nothing has moved. Okay, I'm good. So I've got that confidence. And that's good. I like confidence it. Confidence in your equipment. And I don't care who you are, how long you've been hunting. Confidence in your equipment is paramount because what happens is when we get really nervous and shooting at a game animal, um, we tend to think, oh, that's close enough. And we tend to think, well, yeah, you know, maybe something's happened to my equipment. I, I'm good enough. Just let it go. Because most people are the same way as I am. When you get to that point, that last five seconds, uh, you just want it to be over with. You just want to get that, that arrow gone because that, that animal's going to jump. Your opportunity is there. You want to grab a hold of it. And that is the worst thought we can have, but it's so common. It's I that, know. That, and everybody it, does. It, but I don't care who you are. Close enough. It's going to – I don't know what what is built into human beings to make them think that ridiculous thought, but it's a battle to keep that out of your head. Well, it is a battle, and that's why, you know, in my writings and when I, t- you know, do my television stuff, it's – I'm always emphasizing to people, you know, uh, you can't stack tolerances. So you do everything, each little thing that you do, you do to the best of your ability. Because if your sight's ah, just close enough, your arrow rest is just close enough, your 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 um, your tuning's just close enough, your timing's just close enough. Well, in engineering, they call it stacking tolerances. All of a sudden, you've got these 10 different things that are just close enough. But if everything lines up, if all the stars line up perfectly, you could miss by 10 inches. So you want everything as close as you can be. And the way to have everything as close to, as you can be in the field, in, in the field, I'm talking about not from a tree stand, but out in the stuff that you and I do is to make sure that everything you have is solid, unbreakable, idiot proof. Yeah. So I yeah, you want something. everything dead center of of bad, and then if it moves a little bit either direction, you might still be okay. Well, when, yeah, when and you're talking just, about you want you want it perfect because if it's not perfect, what if your air is in that direction? Yeah, and if you air in the same direction on ten different things, then all right. of a sudden the stacking tolerances is huge. That's yeah. why when people talk about you know, I'm always. I'm always talking about writing about shooting form because it's paramount that your shooting form is perfect. And people go, well, look at, look at that guy. They'll take one pro out of a line of a hundred pros at Vegas. And they go, look at his shooting form. He's at the top of the line. He's one of the best shooters in the world. Look at his shooting form. It's not what you say. It's yeah. But you know what? He has mastered that shooting form. However, what you do is you take the shooting form that is perfect so that you're least likely to interfere with your bow. Now that shooting form is kind of the same for everybody because it ends up 
making you better because if you vary from that perfect shooting form a little bit from shot to shot, which we all do, you're mm-hmm. still going to be closer to the center. If you take this one guy that say has his uh, elbow too far back, you know, it's too far back around his back or right. not far enough, or he's into his face too much or anything like that. Yes. He does that. And he's probably done it for 20 years and he's learned to do it exactly the same every way, every time. So he's able to get away with it. But you take a novice shooter or even a, a, a seasoned bow hunter and you teach him perfect shooting form, then any error that he does left to right or up and down, back or forth that he makes is less likely to affect his shot because he started in the center. In the right place. Be dead center of perfect and then airs either direction. I exactly. love it. I love it. So, so Randy, tell me a little bit about how you build a wind resilient arrow. I say resilient. I don't like resistant because that kind of makes it sound like it can take the wind without breaking, but wind resilient that it, it, it can penetrate through the wind without being affected. How, how do you go about doing that? Well, first of all, uh, there's, uh, well, well, it's very complicated actually, but to simplify it, uh, you want a heavy arrow. You want, does it a, matter where the weight is, Randy? Yes. You, you, the, the front of center, is that important? Very important. Very okay, what, important. To a what degree. percentage front of center do you like for wind resistance or resilience? Well, I, 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 I don't measure percentage anymore. What I do is I, I like, okay, I put an additional, on average, like right now, well, this year I was shooting a, um, I actually shot a pro comp arrow, which is a comp competition arrow, but it, it uses the deep six, uh, materials. Uh, it's, it's just extremely straight. I mean, it's the best competition arrow in the world, um, made by Easton, but, uh, I shot that arrow just because they're extremely accurate and it's, you know, it's a very small diameter, four millimeter diameter. And that arrow is actually, I mean, as arrows go, it's not heavy, but it's relatively heavy as hunting arrows go. So in that arrow, I put an additional 50 grains up front. Okay. So I've got 50 grains plus the regular insert plus I'm shooting 125 grain sever. Yeah. So So you're getting almost almost 200 grains up front. Almost 200 grains up front. Yep. And that probably is equivalent to probably 17 or 18 percent. I don't know. I'd have to measure it. Sounds but right. Then, so then you need to use a broadhead that it's, – it's interesting because broadheads that buck the wind well, and when I say buck the wind, it means they drift less in a sideways wind, uh, tend the, – the broadheads that buck the wind best tend to be the most accurate broadheads. Now, I have a shooting machine. I've tested so, – well, it's, it's like – my brother, when he developed the the Rage, which is a pre- not the Rage, I'm sorry, the Ulmer Edge, which is the predecessor right. to the Sever, um, same patent. Um, when we were d- designing that, and he designed it, I just helped him a little. But we were looking for to make the, the most accurate broadhead out there, and and it is, uh, and and now the Sever is. But what you're looking for is something that creates extremely little turbulence because the more turbulence you have on the front end of an arrow, the less accurate it's going to be. So if you look at something that's got a lot of, I'll say structure on the front of it, uh, it's not going to be very accurate. And it's also not going to buck the wind very well. 
Okay, so you want a very streamlined, let's call it aerodynamic broadhead. Yes. And you don't want it to be big. You want the ferrule to be the same diameter as your shaft. Okay, so and the best one out there now is a sever. And but you want heavy. You want everything to be heavy because, you know, you imagine I mean, just imagine taking a crowbar and throwing it and how much the wind's going to drift it. And this is a gross exaggeration. But then imagine uh, throwing like a PVC pipe and how much the wind's yeah. going to affect it. Okay. Yeah, the wind's not going to move the crowbar. Okay. Right. So you want to you want to be shooting a crowbar. And you don't need speed anymore. Speed is highly overrated. It was when we weren't shooting with rangefinders, it was everything because that was the thing that was going to cause you to miss. Now, I don't remember a shot I've taken unless it's under 25, 30 yards that, that I didn't range find. So right. a heavy arrow is better. It also penetrates better. So a very stiff, heavy, high front of center arrow with very small fletching. And okay. I typically tell me about use, small fletching. Well, I typically use it. It depends. I, 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 I change this every year just because I love to experiment, but I use, I'll use, uh, I want fletching that is very low profile because one of the things that causes us to miss many, many times, and it's probably the most often heard excuse is I hit a branch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you have the really tall fletching, like everybody's using now, you're much more likely to hit a branch or anything, uh, yep. your arrow, your arrow rest or your, or your, um, sight window for that matter. Uh, I use very low profile fletching, but I'll use up to six fletching, six, Okay, so to go more low profile, you're using more fletching. Yeah, using more fletching. That's why I shoot a four-fletch, but a six-fletch. That's next level, Randy. Well, yeah, but again, it's experimental. And I shot six-fletch for years and years, but I'm using extremely low profile, extremely short fletching. So I'm not very likely to hit a branch. Like I'm uh, shooting the, the overall diameter of my arrow with the fletching is probably half what most people's is. Wow. I'm shooting a 1.75 uh, Q2I four fletch. Okay. Is that, is, would that be, I don't know how, you? I don't know how, how high that is. I think my, they're like, my, a, my concern is the height of the fletching. I think they're like a 0.35. Yeah. I, you know, that sounds pretty low, yeah, but yeah, I use a real low profile fletching Yeah, for that reason. Yep. Um, so, and also low profile fletching is not going to drift in the wind as much as a high profile fletching. Right. Oh, for sure. So, you know, and I use it just to take it one step further. Now, if you're going to use that, you can't use really low profile fletching and use a big old, you know, a fixed blade broadhead. It's just not going to work very well. Or so a you have big diameter arrow for that matter. Like small fletching won't control a fatter shaft, like a two, four, six. I shoot a two Oh four. It sounds like you're shooting the one six, six, but the two, four, six, you're not going to control that with tiny little fletching. Well, you can if you put, see, that's the other thing I wanted to get to. You need to use a, a lot of offset. Like, right. like, this is something that's very simple to do at home. But you take, to know how much you're controlling an arrow, very easy to know that. What you do is, if people say, they'll, they'll look at a great big fletch and say, okay, well, this is actually a better fletch because it's controlling my arrow better. However, really, what the bottom line is, is how fast is that fletching getting your arrow spinning? Because spinning is what keeps an arrow accurate. That's what fletching has to do. 
And now there's drag on the back, which helps a little bit, but really it's getting the spinning going because any arrow, no matter who makes it, and any broadhead is not going to be perfectly concentric, meaning it's not going to have the same weight around the center all the way down. So you have to have that arrow spinning to 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 nullify the yep. the the difference in the weight around the shaft. So right. what you can do is what I do is I'll start out at two yards, shoot my arrow, you know, through paper, go back to four yards, and you can see how many revolutions that you your arrow is making in twenty yards. Very simple. Yeah. Take you ten minutes because to do you're it. you're indexing the arrow with a marker, and then you're seeing. Yeah, you shoot that, it into that, a target, yeah. right? And and you go, okay, the the cock fletch is straight up. Okay, you move back back up two yards. The cock fletch is moved ninety degrees, and you can tell how fast you're getting your arrow spinning. Right. And you can get an arrow spinning very fast with very small fletching if they have a tremendous offset. Right. The, the the arrow diameter though the 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 slimmer arrow will will spin faster with smaller fletching is that not correct it is correct and the reason is it's just like you you know you watch a figure skater when they have their arms out and then they tuck their arms and their legs right. back in they start spinning much faster well the <clears throat> the further the weight is from the the axis of the arrow the more energy it takes to spin it which is exactly what you're saying. Right. So yes, a big diameter, say a, a 2514 aluminum shaft is going to take a lot more energy to get spinning. And so it needs a lot bigger fletching. Yeah. So well, that's great. That's shaft really you can good. Use, heaviest yep. shaft you can use, smallest, not smallest broadhead, but the broadhead that creates the least turbulence. Those right. are the things that are going to decrease wind drift. I can take arrows that I shot 25 years ago, my hunting arrows from 25 years ago, and I have a, a hundred yard range right here. And, and there's always a crosswind because it's a cross of a beam and the wind comes down from the mountains. Well, in the evening or bit, you know, in the daytime, it blows up towards the mountains. And so I can take and shoot those arrows that I had 25 years ago. And I can take my arrows that I shoot now and the arrows I shoot now will drift one third as much at 100 yards in the in equivalent wind, whether wow. it's 10 miles an hour, yeah. or 20 miles an hour, whatever it is. And that's, that's huge. That's yeah, huge. It is. Yeah, one third. I mean, that's all the difference right there. That's yeah. Randy. Appreciate you sharing that and and everything else. Let's let's end if you wouldn't mind. Um, what, if you could share with us your most vivid hunting memory, it could be any time <laughs> in your life. What, what, well, right what, now, because it's fresh and it hurts, my most oh vivid, no, <laughs> my most vivid memory is watching that that giant non typical uh, jump the string. <laughs> oh no! So let's let's look for one where you where it turned your way. Your oh, way. it turned my way. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, I, I would have to say probably the most vivid is I went on a horrendous doll sheep hunt and you just went on a, a, a sheep hunt that was like, I don't know how horrendous it was, but it was a very long sheep hunt. Not that yeah. long ago. So you can appreciate this. I went on a horrendous sheep hunt in terrible country with a, a um, less than friendly <laughs> guy. 
yeah. <laughs> anyway, and so it was kind of miserable all the way around, bad weather, everything. But at the very end, I snuck up on a sheep. It was the last day. I snuck up on a sheep. I say I snuck up on him. He was bedded down uh, at the bottom, across this giant crevasse. I mean, it wasn't just a canyon. It was a crevasse, cliffs on both nice, sides. Nice, steep, yeah. And uh, the wind was just howling. And this was before the advent of, of um, tilt-compensated rangefinders, or before even anyone was using an inclinometer. But I had just finished shooting the uh, the uh, world championships in Norway, actually. And, you know, we had we had some tricks because they, they in that tournament, you have to shoot straight. It was in the fjords of Norway. You have to shoot straight up and down. And so a little trick that I had discovered is you take three arrows and you triangulate them. It's too complicated to go over here, but you can triangulate. You aim one arrow at the deer. You let one angle, arrow dangle as a as a pendulum and then oh, you yeah. take the third arrow and you can measure the distance you take the third arrow and have it oh my goodness yeah and you can measure the difference so if it's if the third arrow cuts off like if the pendulum arrow dangles down and let's say that you're shooting a 30 inch arrow and and three inches of that arrow is past the pendulum arrow you know that you need to take 10 percent off of of. Oh my goodness. I, I can't believe that. That I mean, I thought I, I was, a lo- it was a long time ago. I was using an inclinometer where you push the button to mark. Well, no, the, this is, this is, before, this, is this is like a homemade, like anyone knew about inclinometers. That's amazing. But this is the way that it would work. It, you know, it's just, it's just trigonometry, but yeah, I think sure. Out to, to help me win the world championships over there. Yeah. I wasn't the best archer there, but I might've been the one that thought about things the most. You were the smartest. Yep. I, no, I was not the smartest. The person that thinks they're the smartest guy in the room always aren't. But no. <laughs> so anyway, I figured this out. And so I sat there for literally, because there's no way this, this sheep was going to see me or, 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 or hear me or anything. So I'd get behind this rock and I'd peek out and I'd aim this arrow down at the sheep. And then I'd pinch together the two knocks and get out of the wind and hold it and then hold my third arrow down where the two broadheads were together and then measure the distance. And I'm going, okay, man, this is steep. I had to take, I can't remember what I took off, but it was like 20% because there was like six inches of my 30 inch arrow hanging out past the perpendicular arrow. Right. So I go, okay, this is it. So I knew what it was. I did the math and I did it like five times. And plus the wind was howling and I'd practiced a lot in the wind. Because in Norway, the wind was always blowing. So I go, okay, I know how far my arrow is going to drift. I know how far I need to shoot it for. So I drew back. I waited for the wind to kind of calm down. I drew back, and I shot, and I plugged this thing. And it was it was quite a ways. I mean, it was 55 yards. I hit 50 yards, I think, is what I actually shot it for. Yeah. And I plugged this thing. And I tell you what, you know, you've been at the long hunt at the end of a long hunt where, where everything seems to be not going your way and then to find a giant ram and, and to have everything work. It was just like, plus my, my guide was kind of a sourpuss and he didn't even go on the stock with me because he said, there's no way you're going to get that ram. He's in an oh impossible place. So there was a little, I gotcha kind of deal going on too. So my ego was, my ego was uh, in, involved pretty heavily. So anyway, that well, was yeah. Uh, Any time though that you're you're in a situation where it feels like the odds are stacked against you, and you almost 
have written it off in a way in your mind. You're preparing yourself for defeat and somehow you snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. That's awesome. Yep. That's well, there's awesome. a lot of times I've snagged uh, 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 defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> you know, yeah, we do everything there. right. We just screw <laughs> up at the very end. And then you have yep. to, you know, you have to spend the next winter just thinking about it. Well, this was, yeah. a, this was a happy ending, so to speak. Well, let's think on that. Well, Randy, I really appreciate this opportunity. And, and uh, I look forward to doing this again soon. Let's, let's do this a time or two this winter as well. And there's so many different things I want to talk about. I want to talk to you about your, your mule deer rules and, and some of your philosophies on elk hunting. I, I, there's so much that, that I'd love to discuss. But anyway, let's keep in touch, Randy. Thank you so much, man, for your time. You bet. Anytime. All right. Catch you later. Bye. We'll